Well, this evening, we're going to continue on in our study of Christ in the Old Testament. And we looked last week, we had to begin somewhere, and we begin in no better place than the beginning, Genesis 3.15, with what has been called the Proto-Evangelium throughout church history. So the first gospel, Genesis 3.15, that's when grace bursts onto the scene of creation. Because if you think about it, before Genesis 3.15, there is no grace. Why? Because there is no sin. So we don't, no need of grace until that moment. We had no idea that God was a gracious God until that moment. So we saw that in Genesis 3.15. And what we talked about was that we were gonna do in starting out this series, look at four major tent poles that can hold up the whole Old Testament, that if we can orient ourselves around these tent poles, or another illustration would be mountains in a mountain range. If I know these four big mountains and then I'm just plopped in the middle of this mountain range, like sometimes we find ourselves plopped in the middle of the Old Testament, I can see those mountains and then I'll know where I am. And if we, and again, and the idea of tent poles, it holds it up and so in between the poles, I know where I am and I know that the story is moving in a direction. The direction being ultimately the birth of Christ, which then leads to the return of Christ. So God gives this gracious promise that we saw last week, Genesis 3, 15. And what was that gracious promise? He said that he would fix what Adam broke. How did he say he was gonna fix what Adam broke? How would God redeem his people? And he said this, he said it was gonna be through one miraculously born man. That's what he said a second Adam of sorts. We just sang about that, a true and better Adam. Now the Gettys didn't make that up. They wrote that song, but they didn't make that up. That comes from 1 Corinthians 15. Christ is the second Adam, but better than Adam because he has the ability to destroy Satan and not only to destroy him, but to undo the consequences of his deception. And what is the greatest consequence of Satan's deception, death, right? Death is brought sense of being dead to God, that we can do nothing to please him, but then also death as a reality, that there is a, an ending of the vitality of this human body, the end of that. So this second Adam that God promises in his middle of his cursing of the serpent, this second Adam will eliminate sin, death, and the devil. But what we don't know is who is he? That's the question that we're continuing to build in looking at these four major tent poles of Genesis 3.15. And then today, the second one is really a bundle of three rods. Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. How will God be, or rather, this is the question that we're looking at this evening. Will God choose to be graciously more specific about who this miraculously born one will be? And the answer is yes, he will. Because what we know about God is God is the God who speaks. We don't get but a handful of verses into the entirety of this whole book without knowing one thing about God. He speaks. He's not a mystery. What God could have done is he could have just stayed silent. He could have never spoken. He could have just spoken creation into being and then just let it ride. And then we have no idea. We're stumbling around in the darkness, knowing that there's some kind of something out there. We have no idea who he is, if he's a he, if he has personality. 
no idea how to please him if we've wronged him. But he spoke. He is the God who speaks. He, we know that all the way going back to creation by divine fiat. He could have created in any way that he wanted to, and he chose to create by speaking. He is not silent. He is not uninvolved. He is not distant. So only nine chapters go by from Genesis 3.15 to the text we're looking at tonight, Genesis 12, before God speaks more clearly about the promised one, the one that he promised all on his own to bring and where that promised one will come from. So what we're looking at tonight is essentially the Abrahamic covenant. And it functions, you gotta, in order to have the whole Abrahamic covenant, you have to look at three passages in Abraham's life, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17. And take those three rods and you bundle them together and that's the second tent pole for the Old Testament, knowing where we are. So let's look at the first rod, Abrahamic covenant part one, is Genesis 12, one through three. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Well, the first thing that you would think about when you come across this, if you're just reading straight through, you have no kind of background or familiarity with Christianity, is like, who is this guy? Who is Abram? Well, we know from Joshua 24, 2, that Abram is your average workaday pagan in the land of Ur, which is essentially what will become uh, Babylon and Persia. That's who he is. He's just a pagan. He's an idolater. No inclination to or awareness of the one true God. There is no Israel at this time. There is no promised land delineated at this time. There's no nothing. Abraham just lives in what is now modern-day Iraq, Iran, and he's just bowing down to idols. That's who he is. That's it, and that's all. He doesn't pop up in the the, uh, lineage in Genesis chapter 5 between Adam and Noah. He does come from Shem. We see that at the end of Genesis chapter 11, which is where Shem, Shemite, anti-Semite, anti-Semitism, that's where that comes from, comes from that that, uh, name of that son of Noah, Shem. But he's not related to the godly man Enoch in any kind of direct way that we saw in Genesis chapter 5, or you could see if you were to read it. Uh, He's just a godless heathen bowing down to metal statues. That's it. And then all of a sudden, God's talking to him and telling him what to do out of nowhere. So you see this sovereign grace that God chose Abraham because he wanted to. That's it. Not because Abraham was or Abram at the time was some kind of great candidate, a lot of potential on this guy. He's your average, nobody, pagan. Grace just bursts onto the scene yet again. We saw it explode in Genesis 3.15, and then just normal things, how you see things get go down with you know, the Noah and the flood and all that kind of stuff, and then Genesis 11, Tower of Babel, nobody spreads out after the flood. They band together and they're going to look and see what humans can triumph and we don't need a God. There's, there's no grace really, overtly. It's all grace, but there's no overt grace until right here. And what you see here is that everybody in the Christian world loves grace, the idea of grace. But what we have to acknowledge always is that grace is always connected to sovereignty. You can't separate the two. 
because grace is unearned favor, unmerited favor. And if you aren't meriting favor, then how do you get grace? God chooses to give it to you. Not you seeing, oh, that's the best option. God just shows up like he does with Abram. And so what we see here is that this people that come from Abram, they're gonna be a people of grace. We, talked, we read that when we read it, but we'll get into it in a little bit more. But before we move into that people, who are they? Let me just cut to the end a little bit and tell you who they are. Galatians 3.29 tells us, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. What promise? This promise. So that old song that you used to sing, maybe if you grew up in kind of normal evangelicalism a couple decades ago, Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I was one of them, and so are you, so let's just praise the Lord. That's actually a good, pretty, pretty good covenant theology right there. That's just right out of Galatians 3.29. If you are in Christ, meaning if I have bowed the knee, professed faith in Christ, turned from my sins, then that's who I'm talking about, God says, as Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now the promise in Genesis 12, one through three, did, did Abram strike a deal with God? Is that what happened there? Was God rewarding Abraham for something? No. God just spoke this promise to him out of the blue. I mean, you, you almost have to peel back. You're like, I know this, I know that. You'll be blessed, those who bless you, curse those who curse you. There's like 50,000 modern Christian songs written along those lines. But put yourself in the situation. Abram knows nothing of the one true God. And then all of a sudden, that one true God yells at him and says, move out of nowhere. I mean, this is just grace. And then you see there in that promise, there's three major headings, land, seed, and blessing, or you could call offspring. I think seed is more effective. Land, seed, and blessing. Those are the three major headings in that promise. What we're focusing in on and looking for Christ particularly is the blessing. Because what does it say at the end of verse three? And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, what one thing would bless all the families of the earth? Not just Abraham's family. Abraham's family is gonna get to have the land and there's gonna be the, they're gonna have the genetics that will come through that the, ultimately the Messiah will come through. But what would bless everybody on the planet, every people group? on the planet, what would, that, what would bless them? The elimination of sin, the elimination of death, and the conquering of forever of the devil. God already promised to do that through a miraculously born second Adam. That's the, that God's promise of grace was a man, a God-man. And he just promised to Abraham to make him a great nation. That means lots of people. Lots of children will come, but the promise is still vague. So Abram hears that promise in Genesis 12, one through three, and then he just does it. I mean, this is insane. You think about the faith, we call Abraham the father of faith for lots of reasons, but even globally, because Islam looks to Abraham, Judaism looks to Abraham, and Christianity looks to Abraham. Now, let's just, spoiler alert, we're the only ones that are right, but everybody else is looking to Abraham. That's why they're all fighting 
over in the Gaza Strip is because they're saying, no, no, our, our moment with Abraham is this spot. And the Jews are saying, no, this is our moment with Abraham. And Christians were just letting it happen because we're like, yeah, we're not into the land. We don't need that. But Genesis 15, the promise gets a little more clear. So Genesis 13 and 14, skipping over that, two big episodes with Lot. Lot wants the land and he's being kind of a brat. Abram says, take it, that's fine. God says, I'm gonna bless you. Genesis 14, Lot gets captured and taken over by these wicked kings. Abraham rescues him in kind of this amazing whipped up warlord situation. Then he comes back and Melchizedek blesses him and Melchizedek has this big role in the book of Hebrews. We don't have time for that. But then you get to Genesis 15, verses one through 12. After these things, so all of this drama with Lot and all this war and all this stuff, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. So he, Abram knows nothing since, from, directly from God since Genesis 12, nothing. But now God speaks again in a vision. And he says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir, meaning a son of one of his servants. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So that's justification right there, verse 6. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he, God, said to him, Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, deep sleep fell on Abram. Behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now skip down to verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So summarizing that big passage, Abraham has this big concern. Some time's gone by, they're here in the land, and Abram says, God, I hear what you're saying, but I don't have a kid. I don't have a son. I, it's all, right, where it stands right now, all of my legacy, all of my inheritance is gonna go to this son of one of my servants. And God says, no, that's not gonna happen. Abram says, my, my time is running out. I'm getting old. He's afraid his legacy is going to go to this servant's child. But God says, no, I'm going to promise you innumerable descendants. He hasn't yet had one, but now he's being promised innumerable descendants. And we know from the rest of the New Testament that it's not just ethnic Jews. Remember Galatians 3.29, if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. Don't worry, Abram, kids are coming. I promise you that it will be your son, a child from your body. Well, then, then they cut this covenant. This is where it gets a little bit weird. Like, what are we doing? We're chopping animals in half and laying them over. 
and then and then b b buzzards are coming down, and Abram's chasing them off, but then he's asleep, and then there's fire walk. What's going on here? Let me just explain that scene to you real quick. This is called uh, the cutting of a covenant. That's how you would call it, a cutting of a covenant, purposefully. So when you have in the Middle East, a, it's called a suzerain vassal covenant, a, a greater power, the lesser power. So a king, a ruler with somebody who has no power, a serf. And they're gonna come into this covenant and obligate themselves to each other. So the king says, I'll protect you. And the serf says, I will give you portions of whatever I farm. And they make that covenant, obligate themselves to it. And they would, have an, they would just do one animal, cut in half, and then they would both walk between the pieces. The symbology is this. May it happen to me as it happened to this animal if I don't hold up my end of this covenant, of this promise that we're making. And that's what happens. So God has lots of animals laid out like that. But then what happens? Abram is put to the side in a trance in a sense. He's asleep, but he can still see what's going on. And what goes on? Not, he doesn't walk through the animal pieces. What moves through the animal pieces? This torch symbolizing God, right? God, the pillar of fire leading, exit, leading the exodus out. So God's saying, we're making this covenant. You are a part of it, Abraham, but none of it hangs on you. None of it hangs on you. I will be faithful to do this. I'm walking through by myself. I will uphold both ends of this covenant. That's what we see happen in that passage. This covenant is cussed. It's just grace upon grace. God knows Abraham and his descendants will falter. They will not consistently uphold their end of the covenant. But I will uphold it happens. So then you have Genesis 16. Genesis 16 is when Abram says, you know what? I'm pretty old. My wife is also really old. I think I can wing this if I just have a child with somebody else, with Hagar. And you have that whole Hagar and Ishmael situation come up. And then Genesis 17, this is the third rod of the second tent pole, makes it clear like this. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you, and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, many foreigner who is not your offspring, both he who was born in your house and he who was bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant, an everlasting covenant. 
any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Meaning, God, just take Ishmael, he's already here. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So we see Abraham's shortcut. He was thinking, man, I'm really old and my wife is really old. I bet it would probably go better if I had a baby with a handmaiden. That's kind of a normal thing in my culture that I come from. If my wife can't have a baby, then we have a baby surrogately through another. It's a normal thing that we could kind of do. But then how could Romans 4, 20 and 21 be true? If Genesis 16 happens, how can that be true? Because it says, no unbelief made him, Abraham, waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. How is that true if Ishmael's alive? Well, what did he know from Genesis 15? A child will come from your body. What did he know from Genesis 17? A child will come from your and Sarah's body. So Abraham never wavered in faith regard to God's promise. There's progressive revelation. That's a concept we need to understand as the Bible unfolds. They only have what they have. And Abram at that time, he only has, I mean, he has this. Comparatively, we have all of this. He has this. So he's just going off of what he knows. Should he have assumed Sarah? Well, sure, that would have been more faithful, but that's not explicitly what God said. Did he doubt God's promise? No. He believed concerning his body, and he was still old, and that would still have been miraculous. But what's the full promise? Now it's undoubtedly Sarah's body too. That's where the one is going to come from. Now his name is Isaac, and he has a timeline for birth. He's going to be born in the next year. So then you have to ask, as we're following the story unfolding, is Isaac the promised one? Is he that one? How can he not be that one? Because he's not coming from the seed of the woman. He's coming from the seed of Abraham. So he can't be that one. But that's the one that the promise is going to be made with. So now we know it goes from Abram to Isaac. That's how the story continues to fold. The lineage is set. And God will keep his promise. I will give you a son, a seed, an offspring. In Galatians 3.16 says this. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is 
Christ. That's where it's coming from. That's the story unfolding. So now we have temple one and two. This promise is very generic in Genesis 3.15. Now it's a whole lot more specific. It's got to come from Abraham and now Isaac's lineage. And so then Isaac has Jacob, but Jacob has the 12. Now we're, that's where we, we, we leave it off from there at the 12. And the third tent pole picks up with one King David, as we'll see next week. But here, as we can close, I want, I want to give you two things to think about. As redemptive history unfolds, you know what I mean by redemptive history? God's plan to redeem his people in time, as it happens, as that comes through, two things to keep in mind. It seems slow, but it isn't slow. Now, I've said this before, and I think it's helpful for Americans. The Old Testament is soccer. The New Testament is basketball. See what I'm saying? Old Testament's a lot, sh lot longer, and it seems like not a lot of things according to the story very quickly. Now, isn't that soccer? 90 minutes and one goal. That's it. Sometimes 95 minutes and no goals. But that's the game. So now you're starting to watch, if you get an appreciation for soccer, the nuances, right? Every little kick over here and over there and, oh, the almost goal, right? Like you're coming out of your seat and they don't even score, right? So if you're, if you're watching the Old Testament, you're coming out of your seat because you think that's the one and then it, ah, it's just, it's not. It's not Isaac. It's not Jacob and it's certainly not Judah, the actual guy Judah. And then you start seeing more and more and then we'll get to David and Solomon and you think you're coming out of your chair. That's the God. It's not the guy. So close. We were in the goalie box, right? New Testament's different. New Testament's just basketball, like bucket, 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 bucket. Every time down the court, somebody's scoring. Always something happening. So relax into the Old Testament. It seems slow, but it's not slow. Second Peter 3, 9 says the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. He's not slow as some count his slowness, account slowness. But he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Slowness, as we perceive it, is just grace towards sinners. If we see it to be slow, it's just grace towards sinners. If you remember, we skipped four verses in Genesis 15. Those four verses say this in verses 13 through 16. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. That's God saying, I'm going to put them in Egypt way before they ever get there. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. He did judge Egypt, and they did leave with buckets full of gold. Verse 15, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, meaning die. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come, meaning your descendants, shall come back here to this land in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Why was he withholding the people coming back into the land with Joshua for all those years? He's being gracious to the Amorites, giving them time to repent and turn from their sin. No one will accuse God of gracelessness or impatience on the last day. So if it seems slow as God's fulfilling his promises in the Old Testament, it's not slow. It's on time. And then secondly, to remember, and lastly, the promised one is coming. Now, right now, we don't know any more about him. We don't know terms like the Messiah, the son of David, etc. We don't know those terms yet. And we don't know about Bethlehem and the prophecy for that, the prophecy about Nazareth. 
the prophecy about going to Egypt, I'll come call my son from Egypt. We don't know about that. All we know is that he will descend from Abraham and also Isaac and consequently Jacob sometime. So now the search is on. Where will be the one who comes to restore all of this? Where will be the one who comes to eradicate forever sin, death, and the devil? We're looking for that, and we know what family to look from now. That's where we leave it this evening. Christ will come, and he will come from the family of Abraham because it is an everlasting covenant. Let me pray for us. <coughs> Father, we thank you. We thank you for your unbelievable patience with us, that you work through humans. You work through human failings and flaws. You took a man like Abram and you just yanked him out of a place that had no concept or clue of you. He had no Bible. There was no system of worship, no, no priests and temple, let alone a church, nothing. And he followed you because your grace is irresistible. We thank you for those truths. We thank you for letting us see a man who was flawed and a woman like Sarah, his wife, who was flawed, but yet faithful, that, that you justified, called to yourself, people even way back then. And we thank you that you made that covenant unilaterally, that, that we certainly are a part of it, but it's, accomplishment, its success does not hang on us in any way. You walk through those pieces alone, and we thank you for that. We thank you that the cross, to come much later on in the story, that the cross was not a collaborative event between us and Christ, that he did that alone for us, all by himself. We were on the side doing nothing. In fact, we were on the side yelling and screaming, Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. And thank you for planning to redeem your people from before the foundation of the world and accomplishing that through mightily through your son, Jesus Christ. We are grateful, grateful beyond gratitude for that reality. And it's in his glorious name, the name of Christ we pray. Amen.